And in the presence of the Lord, let's open his word now and ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts that we might grasp uh, the truth in God's word. It is Psalm 131 as we continue and almost there to the end of this this stretch of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascents. The Psalms that the, the folks from these little towns all throughout Israel, they would get on the byways and caravan together. They start singing these worship songs, these Psalms of Ascents. Literally, you go up in altitude to Jerusalem preparing their hearts for worship with the great assembly and one of the three great feasts that they would come up to. And so let's pray that the Lord would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, mighty third person of God, the one who would lead us into all truth, given by Jesus, we pray that you would open our minds now. And Lord, we pray that you would work within us in such a way that we would draw near to you and we would recognize your love and act out on it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. About ten years ago, I found myself on a ski lift when we lived in Colorado, a, a great place to be on a ski lift. And I was particularly glad to be skiing that day because I was with a friend that went back to my college days and he was a part of the initial group that kind of discipled me. And I love being there with him. He had also become a PCA minister. And uh, being in Colorado Springs, there's so many Christian organizations out there. So, you know, lots of people were coming out for conferences. And I got to see lots of people. And he was out there for a conference. And we were on the ski lift together. And we, we kind of went through the, how's your family? How's this? What's going on with that? And, and just kind of the pleasantry. When suddenly he, his, his whole countenance changed. And he began this, this really probing almost angry line of questions with me on the ski lift. And you got to understand, you're a captive audience on a ski lift. It's about 40 feet high. There's nowhere to go. And he asked me, he said, I want to know something. Do you go to that meeting in Atlanta every year with, with, those, with that group of young pastors? And I said, yes, I do. Now, this was a, a group of young pastors of larger churches that met together. And in fact, I was just about to tell him that I had been, but I was never going back because I kind of didn't like the vibe of young pastors of larger churches. It's a little bit too much horn tooting in that room for me. But I never got the chance to say, yes, I've been there, but I'm not going back. When, when he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something. He goes, one day I'll be in that room. I'm going to be a pastor of a large church one day, Bubba. He called me Bubba. I suppose I look like a Bubba. I know I talk kind of like a Bubba. But I mean, this is a guy that we've been friends for a long time. And suddenly it's like, who is this on the ski lift? I'll be there, Bubba. You just watch and see. I'll, I'll be there. 
And he got off the ski lift, and he got off, and he's real athletic. Man, when he got off, he's, he's gone. I got off just making sure I wasn't falling, you know, uh, and kind of, you know, getting to the next place. But um, I thought, as I got off that ski lift, I thought, bless his heart. Bless his heart because everything in his life is always about the next thing and never about his life. Everything is about the way things ought to be as opposed to the way things are. And I'm going to tell you something. My friend does not enjoy a lot of contentment in his life. And you know, that's really hard on the people around him because he actually has a lot of conflict within his heart. And you got conflict within your heart. It's coming out in conflict with other people. And so it's always somebody's fault. And there's been a lot of conflict. Would you all like to know the rest of the story? He never made it to that room. In fact, he's no longer in the pastorate. And I know some of you might say, wow, that is so sad. And maybe there's some of you here that that are thinking, yuck, you preachers have yucky feelings and thoughts. I mean, he's a pastor, he's a man of God, and he has all this ambition. He's a man of God, and and he's just thinking about himself and, and thinking about where he ought to be. Yeah, yeah, pastors are people too. So I want to ask you a question. So what about you? Are are you contented with what you have? Are are you contented with your job? Are your family? Are you contented with, quote, what people say about you? Are you contented with relationships in your life? There is a very good chance that you're not. Because we are. Dear flock, a people that wrestle deeply, I do, wrestle deeply with the issue of contentment. Yes? Yes. We, we struggle, and we are a people that desperately need Psalm 131. This is one of three really incredible passages of Scripture that deal so beautifully with the issue of contentment. This psalm, if I could just put it in a, in a real simple format, this psalm is a tale of two children. You were either, in reference to God, we're either going to be a little demander or a little delighter. We're either going to be a little demander, that type of child, a little demander, or a little delighter. And I start in the middle. There's only three verses. How long can I go? The answer is just as long as every other week. So just buckle in. So I want to start in the middle with verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Doesn't that sound great? I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And we are shown in this passage in our relationship with God as either a demanding discontented child that only thinks of how our lives need to be filled right now, on demand. Or we are shown to be a contented child, like a weaned child that delights more in his mother's company uh, than what he can get from her. So, I want us to look at this little demander. We're going to go back to to verse 1 to see what that looks like. And this is a continuum, by the way. It's not like 
I used to be a little demander, and now I'm just, all I do is delight in the Lord every day. I can't stand these theologies of the, the next phase, the, the third this and the fourth that, and, and suddenly in a fallen world we're going to be like up and over forever. No, no, we're going to struggle within our hearts with the sin that remains. We're going to struggle with our selfishness. And God has given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us His Word. God loves us. He wants to draw us close. And He wants to give us delight in Him rather than simply being this little demander. So uh, let's look at the little demander. As one scholar puts it, a nursing baby, a wean child, a nursing baby doesn't have any concept of his mother as a person. She is just a, quote, milk delivery device. I love that. Because, you know, a baby doesn't come in the world and say, my mom is great, my mom's so... You know, she's she's so creative and she's so loving and she's so patient. No, you know, it's not saying that that infants are wrong to want to be fed on demand. What it's saying is that's an example of what we don't need to be like with God. Just always demanding. Right now, fill me up. Right now, give me what I want right now, you see. Uh, A mother is a milk delivery device and not necessarily a person. We grow in maturity to, to grow into a relationship with our mother and our father as well. But, but, but for the little demander, it's all about his desires, it's all about his hunger, his thirst, and this, these demands need to be met right now. This is the person who sees a relationship with God deep down primarily as a way to get his order list of all the things that will make him happy, help him avoid conflict, make his life easier, get his order list, fulfilled kind of like the great amazon clerk in the sky you know and we we know exactly what needs to be delivered to us by god and we know exactly what day that it ought to be delivered to us and y'all this is none other than david writing this this is the man after god's own heart writing this this is big and and david it's as if he's saying My heart is not proud. My heart's not lifted up. I don't consider things too marvelous or too great for me. It's as if he's saying, look, I know what it is to have a proud heart. I know what it is to be this little demander with God. Right now, I'm at a place where I just want to worship the Lord. But I know what it's like to be a demander, uh, a little demander with God. And he's learning to worship God more than himself. Yes, you heard me correct. Worshiping ourselves. You understand. You think you're worshiping a relationship with another person, but what you're really worshiping is what that other person can do for you. You think you're worshiping a a new house or a new this or a thing, but you're really worshiping what that will do for you. And so really it comes down in our lives at any given moment whether we are worshiping God or ourselves. And David is saying, I know what it's like to worship myself. I know what it's like to be proud, haughty, etc. And and I want to say, this is a better way. The other night, uh, we were at dinner. And during this dinner, which was a wonderful dinner, um, we we had a real blessing because there were three little girls in the house uh, that night. And they had just finished VBS here at Highland. So they had learned all their songs and uh, VBS, by the way, thank, I want to say thank you also to everybody involved. It was wonderful. And Claire, thank you for leading it. But um, 
Anyway, they came down and, and asked permission to sing some songs for the dinner guests. This is so wonderful, you know. So there they are, one, two, three. And I'm just taking this in, these sweet little voices, worshiping God, that kind of wonder that children have. You know, that kind of sense that, they, that they've been told God loves me, God's going to take care of me, and they believe it. You know, and they have sweet affections towards God. And there they were singing, In my life, Lord, be glorified. You know that song? In my life, Lord, be glorified today. And it was so beautiful. It was just so worshipful. And I was thinking about that in preparation for this sermon and and how pride is so different from that. Uh, you know, if, if, if it'd be like me taking that song and singing it this way. In my life, Lord, Joseph be glorified. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? In my life, Lord, Joseph be glorified. You know why that feels ridiculous? Because it is. It's ridiculous. That's exactly who we are when we're little demanders. It's all about us. It's all about what we want on demand. It's all about meeting my need. It's all about a lack of, of not having what I think that I want. Oh Lord, verse 1, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy, I mean like stay there, think this. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me or with things too marvelous for me. And notice all the, 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 not, the, the picture of being lifted up. It's kind of like pride, right? Uh, it's lifted up. It's raised too high. It's too great. It's too marvelous. And I want it all. And David says, that's, 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 I've struggled with that. That's not who we want to worship God. Remember, these are psalms of ascent about getting ready for worship. And a big part of getting ready for worship is this humility before the Lord. And so let's call it what it is. It's pride. What C.S. Lewis called the great sin. Jonathan Edwards started talking about the, basically the greatest soul assassin within our bosom is pride. Because pride simply is this. Pride is lifting myself up uh, too high. Uh, my heart is lifted up. Other versions says basically my heart is not proud. And then it goes beyond this, this kind of my heart being proud to what, what we would call arrogance, which is kind of an ongoing attitude of superiority with other people. You see, when it says my eyes are not raised too high, other versions says my eyes are not haughty. Remember the six things that God hates? Yea, seven. A haughty look. A sense of arrogance. And we get that. It's hard to worship God when we are so high in our own eyes. It's hard to worship God when we are casting a haughty look at God, demanding everything for us and not worshiping Him. It's hard to worship us and God at the same time. And then... There's that really, what I would call a really American thing that we struggle with. It's this whole issue of relentless ambition. 
Relentless ambition, verse 1b, and I do not occupy myself. Meaning that's a, a way of life. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me or too marvelous for me. Translated, I'm not always thinking about what I should have in my life to the point that I don't live life well with what I have. You get that? I'm not going to stop till I'm in that room, Bubba. I'm going to be in that room. And I'm going to be miserable until I'm in that room. Until I move to that neighborhood two miles away, I'm going to be miserable. Until I have this, until so-and-so, you know, if you're single, dates me or makes my life. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Nope. Until I have that job, three rungs up the ladder. And I'm not going to stop. No. When it's always about the next thing, we lose the beauty of God's provision right now. You want to make your life ugly and vacuous, hollow? Then don't live your life right now in the love of God, in the provision of God, and in the providence of God, and in the grace of God. Just ignore all of that and always be wanting to fed, be fed something else. Always be looking to something else. Always be thinking about yourself and what needs to happen for you. And when it's always about an upgrade and we privately despise what we have now, guess what? There are people, it's not just about you and me. I mean, we all struggle with this. The people in your life who love you, who are investing in you, you know what you're saying? You're saying they don't count either. You're saying that their investment in you doesn't count because... All of it makes me miserable. And you're going to make the people around you miserable if that's who you're going to be. And then finally, when it's always the way life should be, you do. You just drive the people crazy around you. Look, we need to see. Worshiping us rather than God, I mean, this is, the, this is what we're told to do. It's a trap, folks. It is, it is a trap, it, it is a mirage, and it is a waste of your life. Now, you are not hearing me say, don't work hard. You're not hearing me say, don't use your gifts that God's given you or, or to, to really focus on something that God had an opportunity that God's given you for His glory. I'm saying... Don't just live scrambling all the time, grabbing all the time for your glory and mad at everybody and blaming everybody around you. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from us coveting what other people have and in our pride assuming that we ought to have it too. Doesn't matter what it is. This pride, you know, C.S. Lewis had that great thing. It's not that, um, you know, it's, it's not that I'm the smartest, but I'm smarter than you. There's always a comparison. It's, you know, it's, I've got to always be a little bit up on you. I can't be, you know, uh, happy with just being smart. I have to know that I'm smarter than you. I have to ha know that I scored better than you or that I made more than you. There's a comparative, there's a coveting nature in pride. And... Uh, I want to use an example, and I, and, I, and I need to come clean, I think, on the, the front end of this example. I, I am known as one of the dinosaurs that is not on Facebook, okay? 
Now, I want you to know, I am not saying that Facebook is evil. I am using Facebook as an example because it is where people are, and I think it's a great example. In fact, the reason I'm not on Facebook is I want all those people I've known for my whole life to, to be catching up with me. and me. I don't want to know what they had for breakfast, you know, 20, these people from 20 years ago. And this is my third church I pastor. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to see all those people. And I, you know, that's probably more about my insecurity, is it not, than about Facebook. So just take your little I love Facebook defense force field down for a moment. But there's a growing body of evidence of a kind of Facebook neuroses that shows us this mindset of of being unsettled inside, coveting and demanding. This little, you know, we're either the the demanding little demander or the little delighter. And, And now there is actually why, and maybe you've read some of these articles and seen some of these studies, but it takes a little while for the studies to start coming out, you know, when something's new. But there are widespread, there's widespread evidence of even depression from comparing our lives to other Facebook friends. Um, interesting recent study found that depression came from Facebook, came primarily, you're going to love this. I love being a Christian because like, you know, you do this multi-million dollar study. I could have told you this. It's what the Bible says. And this is the University of Berlin in league with the um, Darmstadt Technical University. So this is not like a theological college hating on Facebook or something like that. This is a, the- this is a, a, a computer college and the major college of, of a country. They said that um, the depression comes primarily from envy. Who would have thought? And I quote from the study... On social networks, everybody tries to come across as their very best, often embellishing their profiles. I'm sure nobody here does that. Also, prominent triggers for envy were the vacations and leisure activities touted by other users. And according to the research, Facebook friends become a reference group against which which one starts to compare one's own popularity and success, and this easily leads to the perfect recipe for feelings of envy. Now, these are like engineers, you know, and, and social scientists coming up with this, you know. They're right on target. In fact, they have coined a phrase that I think is very telling. They've coined the phrase, researchers have coined this phrase, envy, uh, the envy spiral to describe the depression that comes from constant comparison. Meaning the envy leads to a real depression. It leads to a a spiraling out. And I I love, and I won't take too much more time on this, but I love, I read an article a few months ago, actually March 4th, 2013, in Forbes magazine, where um, it said this. It's kind of a similar article. Facebook posts now, uh, posts show a person's life so much of the time, quote, by self-conscious, superhuman wit, and it trades in envy me scenes, sunsets and vacations, possibly fun parties and gourmet dinners, and everyone is busy curating a perfected online image. Now, if you're not depressed yet, (laughs) 
might you be a little discontented? Never in human history has, been, has somebody been able to punch a button, fire up a machine, and do in one fell swoop what they would consider an accurate test on their level of happiness. And, and let me tell you, you lose every day. Number one, because people lie on Facebook. But you lose every day. And, 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 there's, and there's kind of this, this envy. That plays into, does it not, being the little demander. See, I, now I even know what I, I'm missing. Now I know. Now I need to know who to blame. Now I know this. I didn't even realize all the things that ought to be true of my life. And I use this just because it is an obvious example of where we go to every single day. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You know, our culture says, don't settle. Never settle, never be satisfied. You ever heard that? In reality, never satisfied, being celebrated, kind of means you're never satisfied. That's a sad way to live. Now, I'm not talking about doing a job, working hard, using your gifts. I'm not even talking about it whether you advance in a job. All that's kind of, kind of neutral as long as what you are doing is what God is providing, opportunities that He's given, faith opportunities that are coming to you, and your main object with that is to glorify God. Warren Wiersbe commented here, he said that the problem with many people is that they have grown up without growing up. They're like these unweaned children. They've grown up without growing up. And you know, to wean a child, you mothers know about this. You know, there's kind of feeding on demand and, and a demanding little child. And there comes a time when the mother says no. That child wants to be fed and the mother's going to determine when it's dinner time for a change and not the child, right? That's what weaning is. And so the, the, the mother, like, cuts him off, you know, or, or cuts her off. And it's painful to the child. There's often feelings of anger that, that the child kind of, kind of expresses. But think about a mother who, who, who doesn't do this. This is a mark of maturity. The ability to, to, to delay gratification is what maturity really at the core is all about. And so it's necessary, you see. For us to be weaned. So that's the little, the little demander. Now on the other side of the spectrum, and we're kind of somewhere in between a lot of times in our life, and maybe last month we are more like the demander, maybe we're a little bit more like the delighter, the little delighter. There is a better way, and this is the weaned child. This is the example, like a weaned child with his mother, you see. And this is about the mother's presence being more important than the milk. All right. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The child, you see, hasn't been shoved away. The child is still held close and even to the, the chest of, of the mother. But the child is now just satisfied with her love satisfied with being there and trusting that he or she will be fed at the appropriate time. Now, some of you parents have glimpsed this. Obviously, mothers and that whole cycle of weaning and everything, you know what I'm talking about. 
But, but even, us, even us guys, we have, we've experienced this. You know, sometimes when our children grow up, there's this wonderful moment. And it's, like, it's more like a series of moments. When, when our children become not just our kids, we're not just parental in our relationship anymore, they kind of start to become our friends as well as our, our kids. You know what I'm saying? Our, our children actually kind of just sometimes want to be with us. That is wonderful. You see, it's not just about what they can get out of us. It's not just about money to go to the show or, or what I need or the, this or that. And it's not all about... They just want to be with us. They are becoming more mature. And I'll tell you something. There is an exhaustion. It's a wonderful nature in this being like a de- delighting in God, trusting in Him, not always grabbing and demanding... There's an exhaustion in this inward, frantic life of being a little demander all the time. We think it's just the opposite. We think, you know, if I don't reach out, if I don't grab it, I'm not going to have it. Nobody else is going to look after me. So I'm going to make sure that I get what I need, and I'm going to get that and this. And by the way, I saw that they had, and I want one of these. Listen, just the opposite of our instinct is true. That is exhausting. Pride is exhausting. You know why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You don't want to find yourself in opposition to God. That rock ain't moving. You can do all the window dressing around it. He is not moving. And it is an exhausting life to just want and grab and be that little demander. And it is a life of restoration. And a kind of peace in being the child that delights. In Matthew 18.1, it was right after Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, he was changed into this brilliant white. They they were shown in full view that he was not only the Son of God, but he was holy. and, and, And the Father said, listen to him. And there was no doubt in their minds his greatness and the reality of his Messiahship. And then the first thing they do coming down off that mountain. Matthew 18, 1, they ask him, who is the greatest? (laughs) Who's going to get the top slot in your cabinet when the kingdom comes? How do you go from just being in wonder, let's pitch three tents, Jesus, this is incredible, and Moses, how do you go from that to, I need to make sure you give me what I have coming to me? Well, Jesus answered. Jesus answered in such a way that they weren't sure what to do with it. You know, you know, Jesus had this way of, like, not directly answering. So what Jesus did, Jesus is so cool. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus went over and found a little child. And, you know, we can see him leading a little child over. And Jesus had this little child stand in front of them. And, and we read in the text, he says, I tell you the truth. Unless you change. I mean, that's an interesting word right there. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Are the ones that love their master. The ones that delight in their master. You know how those children have that sense of wonder? How they have that sense of trust? And love. So are you a little demander? 
or are you a little delighter? We've got to become like a weaned child in, in humble, dependent, trusting, delighting. Eugene Peterson talks about ambition. I love uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction is the book I keep quoting out of. It's a great book. You ought to get it. It's just on the Psalms of Ascent. A, a Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Eugene Peterson gives this, this great picture of the difference between delighting in God, the way I'm saying it, and demanding. He says, ambition takes the energy. We only have a certain amount. Ambition takes the energy that should be used for real growth and development as people and uses that energy to make something tawdry and cheap. Sweatily, meaning working hard with sweat, sweatily knocking together a Tower of Babel when we could be vacationing in Eden. You see, in Eden they worked. Tend the garden. Name the animals. Rule over creation. It's not, we're not talking about the absent. We're not talking about just sitting in your room at the feet of Jesus all day. We're talking about living for the glory of God in the arms of the Father. And the sense of delight and the sense of peace that comes from that rather than being a demander. Look, weaning, weaning is not a happy thing. When that child is cut off, from feeding on demand. It's not a happy thing, but it is necessary. Weaning matures the child. Weaning changes his attitude. And could I suggest, if you're not just getting everything you want in your life right now, would you consider that maybe God is weaning you because He loves you? Because He doesn't want you to be a little brat spiritually anymore. He wants you. He doesn't want to throw an idol into your lap. I'm grasping for idols. Last thing God's going to do is hand me an idol. No, I take the idol. Maybe He's weaning you and me because He He loves us, because He wants us to become a delighter more than a demander and enjoy our lives more because we enjoy our lives in Him more. You know, you can trust this love, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Isn't, isn't it wonderful to look at the Son of God because so much of what we know about God and what He is like is the fact that God became a man. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But you can trust this love. Jesus, far from not getting what He wanted, Jesus dealt with a different category. Jesus had everything taken away from Him so that you can have what you need all the time. You know, Jesus had his friends desert him. He lost his friends at the key moment. Jesus had his clothes taken away off of him and he was humiliated and he was naked on the cross. And, and most importantly, we can, we can hear that moment where he lost the most important thing when he just screams and, and just this kind of agony of, of aloneness. My God, my God, why have you taken away yourself from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, you, 
you don't have to grab. You don't have to try to ensure your own. You can trust this love because God loved you so much that he lost everything so that you could have him and everything necessary for your life in him so that you could become a little delighter who wants to live closer in with the Father and enjoy the Father and enjoy life in Him. Isn't that beautiful? Finally, and quickly, there is one more verse. Basically, David says, remember this is a psalm of ascent, this is about worship. Basically, David says in the last verse, I've been there, I know what that's like, I'm worshiping God, not myself, so come on with me. Join me, he says. You know, and and I say that to you, except I say it to you different from David. I say, come along with me and help me. And let me, come along with me and let me help you. So that we can help one another not worship ourselves. So we can help one another see the goodness and, and the grace of God and the reliability of His love. Let's ask God to help our lives that our, do you see the word, our hope might be in Him. And so I finish just by quoting these la- this last verse. Oh, Israel, David says, hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you turn our hearts toward the reality of your grace, your superabounding grace, and you have done more than we ever could think or even imagine. Thank you that all your promises are yes and truly and amen in Jesus. Lord, would you help us to help one another? Would you begin by your Spirit to just peel one finger at a time off of the things that we grab? Lord, would you open our arms for you? And would you help us to become delighters who live with more peace rather than demanders? who exhaust everybody around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.